Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. Smushy, how are you today? I am doing wonderfully. How are you? I'm good. It's a very good time, you know, where I feel like there's so much going on in the world and it makes me thankful for you and for what we're doing, just starting conversations, Mm -hmm. meaningful conversations about all kinds of things that, you know, might make things a little sweeter in life or full of direction, I guess, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. direction filled. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Smushi, I'm so excited about this episode because I love talking about you. I know this episode is about us, but I love the you part for me. Thanks, Smushi. It's mutual. (laughs) So where do you want to start? I know we were going to talk about, you know, an aspect of life, like who are you in life? Mm-hmm. Who do you feel you're here to be? And um, where does that come from? Could we start with you and and uh, just take a little trip in your mind and your heart and your awareness to the beginnings of Melody and who you feel you're here to be, what does that look like? Mm. How do you express it and and go back to your beginnings? Like what your first memory of being you distinctly from everyone around you happened? The only thing that really stood out to me was my mom. And my mom had, she has two brothers, but there's one that lives here, older brother, and has always been typical older brother. And my dad was around until I was 10. And I just remember growing up feeling like my mom was always the smartest person in the room and always kind of taking a backseat to the men in my family. So even though she knew the truth about something or even though she you know, had all the information, she would still sort of defer to them as the authority. Hmm. And I think that that's something that really shaped me because I really didn't, it would really wrangle me up inside because I didn't understand why she was doing it. Hmm. And so there was a lot in me where I was like, is that something that's going to be expected of me? Do I need to do that? So it's really shaped a lot of how I think I've sort of turned out in a lot of ways where I really believe in equality (laughs) in short. And it's so fascinating because it sounds like it also set you very early in life out on the path of thinking for yourself. Yes. Not necessarily repeating what's going on around you, which is extraordinary to think you came upon it, awakened to it at such a young age. Yeah, even though it's interesting because I still do feel like I repeated so much and I probably am to this day, but I don't have awareness of it yet or I didn't have awareness of it yet. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting how you can only take on what you understand at the time or what you're aware of. So true. And I think that those are just some of the earlier things that I happen to become aware of and that 
I feel so lucky to have identified as such where I can even verbally articulate it because so many of these things happen and I can't even articulate them. Don't you think that's why uh, you and I love these conversations or yes. our one continuing conversation? Because the truth is you and I both wish that people talked about this everywhere, yes. that we were invited into the the inner workings or process of anyone, uh, everyone. But because it's not spoken of, you have your experience as you're sharing of just like not being sure what something is because you've never had it held up for you as a topic uh, of that is being considered. And it's such a great example. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary what you're sharing about that microcosm of the world in your family setting where your uncles and the males of the family were in your family, the dominant view, the biased view, and that that got your attention. Mm -hmm. The fact that it got your attention at all, that you noticed it, I'm sure that's quite a common experience for many females. Yeah. And then what happened after that? Like, how did that impact your next steps, like, for example, how did it affect your elementary school experience? Oh, wow. I don't know if I can go that far hmm. in me, but I know that it made me, I mean, it's a theme of empowerment that we keep talking about. And I always felt like it put you in such a disempowered place. Hmm. If I have to rely on somebody else's logic or somebody else's authority or somebody else's whatever it is, then I think I felt my mom's frustration often because when she gave away her power in those ways or when she deferred, then it didn't allow her to just do the thing that she could have done from the beginning, which is what she knew. Mm. Also, this isn't a judgment. I know so many women that have done this, especially in that generation, but it just made me feel like I never wanted to put my power in the hands of somebody else, especially just because they were a male. Mm. I always wanted to be able to provide for myself, to do for myself, to think for myself, and to have that viewpoint considered and acknowledged and a part of, like, factored into the equation. Mm. So that it wasn't arbitrary. It doesn't mean you didn't respect men. Yeah. It just meant that for you, it couldn't just be because. Yes. And do you feel like um, that thread carried through to your choice of where you placed your interests in life? Not necessarily my interests, but I think mm. the way that I navigated things, mm. I feel like I built something of my own, which was pretty revolutionary for me in my family history because I don't think any woman had really done that yet. Mm. Not at least in my mother's lineage. So I wanted it to be mine. I love that. Uh, the awakening to making something yours already indicates that you were aware that you were more than the sum of your family. Mm -hmm. There were parts of you that certainly were part of the family, but parts of you that remained autonomous. Yes. How remarkable. That was hard. I have to say that was really hard because it feels like a betrayal. Mm. It feels like I was betraying them by telling them that I was more than the sum of them. 
Don't you think that that's a common challenge for peoples? We come from backgrounds or family systems, cultural systems that dictate what we're supposed to believe. What happens when you run up against something that really speaks the opposite to you personally? And if you look at evolution, that's what's required To evolve means to carry forward from that stagnant place or the place you've arrived to. And uh, I think it's both the purpose of life, but also one of the most challenging things. Because think about if people did think for themselves, we wouldn't have wars ever. Because nothing is worth destroying human life for. Mm. So it shows how deep that vein goes. Mm-hmm. You know, the inability to extricate yourself from a family system and belief or patterns towards men, towards women, towards children, towards people of other races. You know, it goes so deep. You have to wake yourself up and say, is this truly representing me? Yeah. It's really hard because you have no reference for you. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can reference that's you. You can only reference all your history that has happened in your family up to this point or what you've witnessed or what you've been told or whatever traditions have been carried forward. And so it really feels like being an amoeba and (laughs) floating around without a reference of some sort. Mm. So I think it really requires you, like you said, to go in deeper into yourself and and tie yourself to something bigger than you. Wow. And I love your reference to an amoeba because amoebas don't have boundaries. Mm. It's not unity. It's they become part of whatever they roll into. And, you know, and that's frightening to be able to not differentiate what is you and what are others, Mm. however close we may be. Mm. Yeah, I relate to what you're sharing. I relate very much. Um, I think um, my own origins are strange. No matter how many times I have shared it, it never gets less impactful. It never gets normalized. Um, I've shared about my very unusual near-death experiences from uh, when my mother was pregnant with me and the doctors that I had died and I would abort uh, those two times that happened, uh, how I spent a great deal of time, of course, outside of the time and space continuum. There is no time, but what I was shown rather than talked about, had revolutionized what would become my life. So instead of me being able to adjust and take on my family's family systems and beliefs, I had no choice because I was indelibly imprinted with the near-death experiences. So in my family, very, very devoted atheist family, how strange that I have to break it to them at some point that I was in the light and the light is the creator of all. You know, it went up against every single thing that they 
believed in every single thing they were passionate about, vehement about, anti about. And it's not that I didn't hear them, but it never pulled me in. At the moment I remember hearing their discussions on that, I must have been around two. And I remember thinking the thought, oh, they don't know. They truly don't know. But they're the grown-ups. And then my second thought was, I better not tell them. They don't want to know. I've experienced that in multiples throughout my entire life. Not so much about the details of it, but the observations that I uh, was given, what I was shown in those near-death experiences, was not about me and my life, which most recorded near-death experiences are about. They were about humanity and what specifically makes us evolve and what specifically makes us devolve, both in the micro in our individual lives and then the macro of when how we interact together. And I think that's why I'm very, uh, I get fascinated about the hidden beliefs or the hidden programs that we live by without doing what you did, ask questions. And I know historically we've been discouraged from asking questions. But only when you ask questions are you ever going to find anything out. Mm. You can't discover or explore science if you haven't asked a question. And um, I think it's always put me in that same exact precarious place when I was two. Am I sharing too much mm. from my awareness? Is this going to burden somebody? Are they going to be upset? Or should I remain quiet? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, it's the latter. I really respect people's rights to understand and know things just the way they do. I don't think anyone needs me to share. But like you, once in a while, I meet someone, like in our friendship, where it's understood that that's a frame of reference and it's free to pop out wherever it does. Wait, so Smushi, essentially you had a near-death experience before you were born, two of them. It's very backwards. Yeah. It's so backwards. It's such a crazy idea. I mean, personally, I am very curious when I put my body back to the earth and return to the light. I'll be very curious to know what kind of idea is that. Yeah. Because you're so um, oriented towards anything that is about unity, light, what brings it, what helps us out of dilemmas and into the next area. You know, you were saying something that really caught my attention. I, I'm fascinated by this. Like you were talking about with yourself, like all these things you wish you had known, but you didn't know. And none of us know what we know before we know it. Mm-hmm. Which makes us think in terms of evolution, like, oh my gosh, no matter how brilliant we ever may grow to be, it's actually still going to be a spit in the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> like, so you know all of this. Okay, then what? Because it's about our evolution together. How do we help each other evolve? That's the real trick. 
because we can't evolve ever to our highest place of being human, discovering what is human, until we're bonded together in an equal stance of power, appreciation, justice, so we can unfold the real love. Well, and that's what's so cool about your near-death experience or what makes it different from a lot of the ones on record is that, like you said, when you had your near-death experience, you were shown about the world and about people and us versus about your own life because obviously you hadn't really lived much of a life yet. You were an embryo. And looking back now to that, do you think that that plays a role in why you are alive now? And what you do? A hundred percent. I work as a medical intuitive, but that's really just a name that doctors gave me. But really and truly, what am I really? I'm just a person. I'm a I'm just like if people call you a designer, you are a designer. But is that really what you're doing? Mm. You know, what I'm doing, I think, is supporting people by observing their design and helping them take next steps out of wherever they're stuck or lodged, where things are not working. I think I find it irresistible to, with even a glance, with even an acknowledgement of who a person, what they really are, who they can become by being what they are, Mm. I find that incredibly irresistible And how brilliant that I'm not nosy and people are drawn to work with me in that way. Mm. How could I be more fortunate if I searched the world for something to do? No. (laughs) But for years you hid it because your parents reflected back to you that everybody around you really just didn't want to hear about it and it freaked them out a little bit and... They thought that, you know, the government was going to kidnap you and use you to make weapons of mass destruction and who knows. And like you said, they were all atheists. So the concept of this happening was just out of their realm. So until when did you hide it, essentially? And then how did you come into not hiding it? Hmm. And also just what does it mean when you say you look at people? Um, Well, first of all, growing up, was a very bumpy ride. I thought it would be sufficient to address people in the ways, maybe we will call it the ways of conciliation or love, but people interpreted that as a sign of weakness. I wasn't very savvy, and you know I'm kind of slow. So, you know, I had a lot of bumps along the way when people would say, get real, this is what the real world is like, to be harsh. Mm. Every time I heard my parents or my teachers or family say, be real, this is what reality is, I remember my voice inside screaming out, why, that's not reality. Mm. That's human frailty. Hmm. We've just obscured our vision. We can't see what's real yet. Mm. Hmm. Of course, so I spent most of my life as an introvert, which I am by nature. But my desire to make things better for people included 
helping them when they were in pain, physical pain, not healthy. I observe people, because I'm so slow, think of me in like slow-mo, and everybody else is really fast. And so in one blink of my eyes, I take in very slowly the design of people. And then I was born with a problem with my eyes, as you know, with photosensitivity. So the emanations of light still come off of organs for me, observably. So if something is out of order, if something is in stress, an organ or a gland or a system, I always noticed it. I just didn't know you're supposed to do something about it. Mm. So I... uh, later on became a kinesiologist and then my professors and teachers and doctors would borrow me after class to ask me to look at their mystery patients and ask me what tests would I have them run and I would make suggestions and then it had very favorable outcomes for them and they kept coming back and so I really practiced being a kinesiologist for a few years but really I didn't have a chance to practice it because people started to come for me to just look at them and so for one person maybe it is just acknowledging them and for another person, it might be, oh my gosh, you got to move away from high wires. Your house is too close to something that is going to cause tremendous damage to your body. To even looking at the chemistry of emotions hmm. and seeing when we're in relationships that are wholly unhealthy, what happens to the body? And it's so amazing. Whenever I tell a person what's going on with them that I observe, I'm like, huh. Look at this. It looks like you have X, Y, and Z problems. And it's every time you're with this person, without an exception for I've been doing this for 30 years, a person will look at me and go, yes, every time. Exactly. They get so excited. And here we're talking about them being ill, or we're talking about pain or horrible symptoms, but they get so excited because finally they were seen. They were observed. They were witnessed. And just like you were talking earlier, they thought they were alone. They thought they were all alone in there. And they thought it was somebody didn't get their body. But the truth is, it was them who wasn't gotten. Hmm. I would ask you the same question in a different way. Like, what do you see about others that makes you want to offer what you do? Well, I think that so much can change for a person if only they're seen, mm-hmm. just because I think that that's what happened for me. It's like I had lived this whole life where I kind of felt like I was asleep before. And then I had one person that saw me. And then in that moment, after I was seen, it just sort of gave me a whole renewed sense of what was possible for me and what I could do with my life and what my nature was. And all of a sudden I felt like, wow, maybe I have a purpose too. And that possibility is so exciting to me. Mm -hmm. I think that humans are so exciting. We all have so much potential, the possibility for change. And I think that I just see that maybe something that 
they don't see that in themselves. It's not like I see it, but I know that something's there. And so I like to create situations where that could flourish, where maybe they can find other people that can mirror them, or maybe they can find something that gets them excited or turns them on, or maybe there is a little bit of information that I can provide that would set that little flicker inside of them. It's evolution in a snapshot. Mm. You've changed the outcome by just showing up and seeing what is real. Mm. What is reality? I love that so much. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, oh my gosh, in my first near-death experience, that was the only time I was given reflection of my purpose. Mm. And it just occurred to me for the first time in all these years, as we're talking today, oh, they did share with me my purpose in a very discreet way if you were going to communicate it to an embryo. (laughs) Uh, Totally ignorant embryo. And that is the first time I died, I was told I hadn't finished my purpose, that my purpose was to help my mother because she was in grave danger and dire shape. And as she was an experiment in medicine at the time, unbeknownst to her, which is why I I died, is because she um, was taking lethal doses of a toxic drug, and she didn't know it, so she didn't know why she was changing and what was happening to her. So in the first near-death experience, I experimented by observing her, going inside her chemistry and rearranging things a little bit. And I tried it for so long that then again, when the toxicity of the drug took me the second time uh, into the light, I was told I had completed my purpose completely. Mm. So I spent all that time in the light, which was the longer near-death experience. And I spent, you know, the equivalent, if you could assess time in the light, which you cannot, it would be like for several hundred years. And I just was in bliss. And I never wanted to go back into my body for any reason. But by seeing what, what souls were doing by inhabiting their life, by in their body, inhabiting a purpose. I was really inspired to praise them and like cheer them on. The equivalent of saying prayers with an awful lot of enthusiasm, uh, very deep and personal for each one, as if I personally was in charge of their earth mission, which of course I was as further away from that as you could get. But the more I got fascinated by those souls, the more it drew me out until I saw the tiniest little mission. And I was like having this little thought, oh, I could do that one. And boom, I was back in my body, but not without some very sobering instructions. I realize now that's exactly how I work. I just observe the heck out of people because I'm such a fan of every person. Mm. Just like you were saying, People are amazing. People are astonishing. We haven't the faintest idea of how extraordinary a human being is. And aren't we lucky, you and I, we both feel that way? Mm -hmm. It's the best of our lives. It's the best we can bring. (laughs) So, Smishy, so you did kinesiology, you did all this, and then 
the looking part was still kind of a secret or no? A hundred percent. Yeah. The only reason I got outed is because when I was going through exams or testing or, you know, you have to um, spend practicum work working on other kinesiologists in order to graduate, finish. Um, My one surgeon is particularly responsible for this. He noticed what I was doing really. And so he outed me and he was like, I see what you're doing. Now, can you help me with my patients? I mean, I broke out into sweats. I still actually break out into sweats. If people ask me about it, you're the only one I don't. That and my, you and my family are the only people. Everyone else, if they do, I do break out into sweats because my parents did such a good job with me. And it's not that I do think the government would kidnap me to make weapons of destruction or any crazy sci-fi vision fear of theirs. It's just that I think there's a part of me that knows it makes people horribly uncomfortable. Mm. They're not willing to accept what they are. So I represent that. Mm. And I do think courtesy really is the prince of virtues. So I do want to honor people. I do want to be courteous. And if they don't want to know, I don't want to share. So can you tell me about Swaziland? I guess I'd have to say first, when I was 10, I started to have a lot of visions, which I was prone to having as a child. And uh, that... I was living in a country, and it was my home, and I was looking at it from an aerial view. And there was an elderly gentleman who would greet me in the dreams and the visions. He sort of reminded me of my own dad, who I was very close to uh, my whole life. And it was comfortable, and he knew me. And I had the dreams over and over and over. Then one day... Um, my guitar teacher, who was very anxious that I was spending so much time asking him questions about his life and how he was feeling and how he was. He was in his late 60s, and I was 10 to 12 working, you know, uh, his student. And he thought I was developing a crush on him, which is why I was delaying going home afterwards and asking him personal (laughs) questions. But really, I just noticed he was such an extraordinary human being, kindly, good, light-filled. I was riveted to understanding him. And he was trying to get me to be interested in his son, who was considerably older than me, but younger than himself. And so he showed me photos of his son one day so that I'd become more drawn to his son. Um, And his son was doing a year of high school abroad in a country called Swaziland, which now is called Eswatini. But he was going to this school and he showed me the photo. And I don't remember seeing his son. I just remember seeing the background of the mountains and the grass and the colors and how things grew. And I was transported back to my visions that I had recently been having. And so I told the man, oh, this is Swaziland? Oh, I'm going to live there someday. And he looked me deep in the eyes, and instead of like laughing it off like you would to a kid, he said, oh, I believe you will. Hmm. 
So fast forward later, I ended up in my first marriage, my then husband was given a job opportunity after a bit of a drought in his incredible, successful career. And uh, the people offered him a job in Swaziland said, the only problem is that it's going to be in Swaziland. Do you think it's going to be hard to talk Julie into this? And he said, she's already packed. (laughs) So that's how I got there. And then I did, in fact, end up meeting that elder, and he did become like my second father. In fact, he became my teacher and my mentor, and I ended up becoming a traditional healer according to the laws, rituals, and ways of that society. And uh, then they gave me a, an area to practice in, like a region, for quite some time uh, before I left the country. So cool. So Smushi lived in Swaziland for how long? Well, there and then South Africa for under 10 years. Though that doesn't sound like a terribly long time. It was a very pivotal time. And um, when you don't have a lot of, at that time, we didn't always have electricity or water or life is slower and exponentially slower than anything we experience in the States. Even our rural experience still is connected to systems, Mm -hmm. and there it's not, you know. Uh, So I would say that time was the luxury I was given. Mm. I raised my children there. Time was so sweet because you had the opportunity to take people in, Mm. to take nature in, to have to respect nature and respect what's going on. Like we had storms once or twice a year where it would hail the size of golf balls or larger, maybe sometimes like the size of small oranges. And a lot of people every year had to go to the emergency room for stitches because the hail would hit their heads. (laughs) And, you know, your first year, you're shocked. And after a while, you acclimate. Things here, I feel like in the States, I don't know if you agree, but our culture here means that we have created systems. We have had the privilege of not having to understand weather patterns. Yeah. Sushi, I was going to ask you how you figured out how to stay on course with what you discovered about yourself and your gifts. How does the world not wear you down? The world does wear me down. (laughs) Um, But I think that the way that I stay on course is really keeping a greater view of things, understanding that, or really just believing that maybe this is one part of my journey, not the whole journey, Mm. and constantly searching for my role in it. I think that's what I'm most curious about. I deeply do believe that I do have a purpose, and I understand it on some levels, But I think every day my biggest question is just, what's my role today? Hmm. Where is it that I need to be? Where do I need to put my energy? If I meet this person, do I have a responsibility to them? If I talk to that person, what's my role with them? When do I know when I don't have a role with somebody and just leave things as they are? 
I think it's this constant understanding of who I am through my role and how I serve through that. What are some of the ways that you personally feel inclined to go further? My my dear friend, Deborah Christensen, used to say, oh, that just means they're not on your dance card. Yeah. You feel <laughs> that it's not productive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked about energy so much, and I think that I'm somebody that has a only so much energy and there's things and people that give me energy. It's like a shared thing. And then there's people that take it or situations that take it. And so I've become really interested in figuring out why, why do certain things take my energy and what does it mean when it does? And mm. it feels like I'm an outlet and they're just plugging into me. Why does it feel that way where it's one-sided? So I think that I've just really figured out a lot about that. Like there's service projects I do, like a community that I, I serve every week. And it's a lot of hard work. But for some reason afterwards, I'm filled with energy after, despite how hard it is. Because I think that there's something about that community that appreciates what I'm doing and they see me and I see them and it's this mutuality that happens and it's beautiful because I get to do something for them and without them knowing it they're doing something huge for me but you know just in terms of role it's a personal process you just have to figure out if something is for you or not and why hmm. and so I've learned to trust some of the signs or feelings that I get towards that to not feel like I have imposter syndrome sometimes where I would have in the past and just be like, this is coming up for me. I think it's really mine. I think I need to go for it. Or, you know, I really feel drawn towards working with this person. Um, maybe it's not so crazy for me to try and reach out to them. Maybe there's a reason why that's popping up for me. Mm -hmm. And almost without a doubt, whenever I trust that real voice inside of me, there is something there and it, it feels really good to explore that and it's mutual. I love that. Um, if we grew up learning that we should trust that, we'd have so much less hardship in our lives. Mm. And if we were given permission to not go in a direction that where there is a lack of mutuality, Yes. I don't think anyone has had a frame of reference to say no. It's not yes or no. It's not at this time. It's yeah. right now that obviously is not there. And you may even have a sense of time regarding that, like maybe in the future. That opens up the possibilities of recognizing stumbling, the concept of stumbling into something. Mm -hmm. Like not everything is graceful. Yeah. The universe wasn't formed like ballet. Yeah. And sometimes it's messy and awkward, and then you get repositioned, and then it is mutual. And I, I, I love when we can appreciate it ourselves. Mm. I was wondering if you've ever had that experience where you stumbled into something that you weren't expecting to stumble upon or a person, and you didn't see it coming. When did you recognize that as something to pursue? Yeah, there's so many 
so many things like that that have happened for me. This sounds silly, but when I thought about designing stuff initially, when I was like, oh, I, I want to make a shoe or I want to make this ring or I want to make these earrings, I never anticipated anybody buying them. I just wanted to make it. And then even when I did think about buying them, I never thought about maybe somebody that I admire buying them or wearing them mm-hmm. or having that kind of relationship with like a singer that I grew up listening to. When I started doing that, what I was doing, I kind of it tried to infuse a certain sort of voice into it. I never thought that that would be acknowledged or seen. I remember a few years after I started designing things, I got invited to the White House to come, which actually you came with me, Smushi. I made you come with me. But I, I was invited to the White House for Women's Month back then by um, Vice President Biden. And all my friends that had gone to law school and I was the dropout and I was the one that was, you know, all gung-ho about the law. Here I was, I had left to go towards design and fashion, something completely different. And I was the one that was being invited to the White House for this event. And it had never occurred to me that that could happen to somebody in my position. And so it did sort of validated my trajectory. I was like, wait, I can be both at the same time. Just because I abandoned the law doesn't mean that I abandoned all the reasons why I wanted to go into it. I can still use those in what I'm doing now. Hmm. Or even people, there's so many people like that, that I've met just at the right time that have ended up, you know, having this relationship with me. I remember Saul Williams. I had become friends with him and he was the first person that really asked me to design something for him. And I was like, really me? I've never designed anything for anybody. And it was this whole thing. And I ended up doing his album cover and making all this stuff for him. And it was completely mutual, but it was this magical connection that had happened, this relationship that really was not anticipated. That's incredible. And it's inspiring too. I mean, it's inspiring to know that everything we do contributes to the path we're on. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's a direct outcome. You couldn't have made the goal, I'm going to meet Saul Williams and do this. Mm -hmm. It's something that you just had to pursue what you were. Right. And that's what created the introduction. Yeah, I've done a lot of stumbling in my life, quite a lot. I think because the universe is infinite, I have the awareness that I make my footprint and then the universe answers. Mm. So sometimes it is logical. You know, one plus one sometimes equals two. And sometimes There's a placeholder there and all kinds of things come in that spot. And that has to do with observing people's health patterns. I stumble into patterns and trends, which I sometimes I talk about patterns and trends at workshops and places like that. But really, it came to me. I didn't go for it. I quite love the stumbling 
process. It's kind of like I love traveling alone because then everything happens, everything wonderful. You're not alone. You're never alone. You're always with humanity, and you're always with nature, and you're always with the light. And so you will be led to something else. I feel like that's a big thing about today's conversation. What does it look like to wake up and take your first steps? I really love that. I love that too. (laughs) Well, Smishy. Yeah. It's been sweet to have another conversation or another petal on the big flower. Of course, I'm always left with my mind just racing about all kinds of different things and inspired. So thank you. Thank you, Smishy. Thank you for being my friend and (laughs) inviting all these other people along with us. I, I hope they feel that they're part of this conversation too, because that's why we're having it together, all of Mm -hmm. us together. Well, until next time. Until next time. (laughs) Bye, Swishy. Bye, Swishy. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. 